Let me just pray. Father, we pause with deeply grateful hearts for the sacrifice of Christ, for the provision that it gives us to have just an open, unhindered, barrier-free relationship with you. And any barriers that are existing are because of ones that we've allowed. So thank you for your grand gesture in sending Christ. Thank you that we can have all that you offer because of Christ. And one of the great benefits and, and gifts from you is your word. And so as we consider it now, we invite you to speak as only you can to us in very personal terms. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Sorry. It's the third of five words that we're looking at together, individual words during the course of this month and probably into early August. And it's the third, as I said, of five words. The first word was the word no. And the word no is such an important word. It helps us set up healthy boundaries in life. It helps really free us up. And it leads in a, in a really good way into the word yes, which was the second word that we looked at. I don't think you can say healthy yeses in life until you sort of understand the idea of how to say a healthy no. And these things really reside in the idea that when I know who I am in Christ and I know what his mission for me is, it gives me great clarity, it gives me uh, freedom to be able to say the healthy no or the healthy yes. And as I said, today's word is the word sorry. And if I had to guess, I would say that the word sorry is the most difficult of the five words. It's the toughest one for us to deal with because it strikes at the very heart of our pride. And biblical sorry is, is, is different than the typical stories we hear in our world today. A biblical story is not the word oops. Biblical story is not the word I got caught. Biblical story is not my bad. Biblical story is going under the knife, in a sense. It's allowing God to examine me with unflinching honesty. And it requires us, and this is why it's so difficult, it requires us to be very humble. And really what it is, is it's invasive surgery for the soul. I'll say that again. It's invasive surgery for the soul. A while ago, I had a, a sliver in my hand. And it was just in an awkward place, difficult to extract myself. I probably could have done it, but um, because it was in such an awkward place, and also because Debbie just loves to gouge things out of people, she, she got a pair of tweezers and what looked like to me a small Husqvarna chainsaw and extracted the sliver, and I, I courageously endured it. Around the same time, within a week or two, one way or the other, uh, we noticed that there was a slow leak in one of the tires in one of our cars. And so I took it to uh, Fountain Tire, and they, they patched it, and they repaired it. 
And I want you to imagine with me in both of those circumstances, if I had just said, you know, I don't want to deal with those things. I don't want to deal with that sliver. I don't want to deal with that slow leak in my tire. Because when I look at them on the surface, when I look at them in the grand scheme of things, in, in my mind, I could almost rationalize and say, they, they don't seem like a big deal. My life seems to be fairly manageable, even though I've got this sliver in my hand, even though my tire is leaking on the vehicle. And maybe I'll just address, not address these issues, and hopefully they'll just figure it out on their own, and they'll just go away on their own. Or to use the lingo that we often hear in our culture today, with increasing frequency, stop shaming me about the sliver in my hand or the slow leak in my tire. Oh, you're making me feel bad about the sliver in my hand or the slow leak in my tire. Stop shaming me. And we usually don't do that with our body or with the tires on our vehicle, do we? We often, however, do this with our soul, with our very character. The things that matter the most to the God of the universe, the God that created you, he cares about your soul, he cares about our character, and he wants to address those things. And so I have a bad temper, I have an undisciplined tongue, I lust, I gossip, I'm selfish. My real God, small g in life, is money, but I don't want to address any of those things or any other number of things I can mention. And so sorry becomes a word in my vocabulary that I use to just sort of placate relational unpleasantness. Or, if I'm a bit of a manipulator, it's a technique I use to control people, but not to face the ugly truth about the state of my soul. And I don't seek God's help to remove the sliver, to fix the slow leak in my tire. Because I don't want to pay the penalty or the cost. And you know what, UDAC, in our church here, there isn't a person here that doesn't have slivers, starting with me. So I want to tell you a story from Scripture. I want us to read about a story that, that talks about just how high the stakes can be when it comes to the slivers or the slow leaks. So let me set the backdrop to this story before I read it to you. So in the New Testament church, just as it's launching in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, when the church is about 15 or 20,000 people meeting in the city of Jerusalem. And you know, oftentimes we'll hear this thing, we, we, we think that the church were just little, little wee small groups in house churches, and there might have been some of that, but it might have also been a church of 10,000 on Sabbath day, or 20,000 people meeting together. But we know at this time in history, the church is about 15 or 20,000 people in the city of Jerusalem. And one of the couples in this early New Testament church 
is a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. And we don't know much about them. We don't know what their motivation was in being part of the church. We don't know how they entered the church. But I'm guessing at the very least, and this is just a guess, that there was some level of seriousness in their pursuit of God. Because you didn't join this little group, this little family, this little tribe on a whim. Because it was extremely costly to be part of this group of people. It could cost you your life when the authorities found out about you or your freedom or some level of serious persecution. The church in those days was known for extreme generosity, for almost radical, over-the-top generosity. This was one of the things that set them apart in a very significant way in the culture at that time. And when you study the early church, you find that everybody gave, just like biblical Christianity invites us to do. Not equal gifts, but equal levels of sacrifice we're called to, to give with liberality and with joy and with freedom. And so whatever your um, economic state in life, whether you were very poor or, or, or had an abundance of resources, everybody was giving very generously in the early church. And there was a guy in the early church in chapter 4 of Acts called Joseph. And we're told about a story about Joseph where he had extra resources. And so he goes and he liquidates one of his assets. He sells a field that he has. And we're told at the end of chapter 4 that he brings all of the, the proceeds from the sale of this field, and he lays it at the apostles' feet, at the, the leadership of the church's feet, and they take these funds and they distributed them uh, within the community in, in a very generous way. And as the community observed this, they were so appreciative of him that they decided to change his name. And they changed his name from Joseph to Barnabas, which literally means son of encouragement. This guy has this incredible gift of encouragement that we recognize and we want to acknowledge. And that was in a day when how you were named was a very big deal. And so they changed his name to son of encouragement. This is the backdrop of the story that we're about to read. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 5. And, and so there, there, there's there are four stories, biographies on the life of Jesus, the Gospels, and then we come to the opening pages of the early churches, the fifth book of the New Testament, Acts chapter 5. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11, but we'll just begin with verses 1 and 2. But as, as I'm about to read this, I remind you, that this is the word of the Lord. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now we're not totally sure why they decided to do this. Maybe they started out, and again, this is just a guess on my part because the text doesn't say specifically. But maybe they started out with very healthy motives. 
you know, I'm just going to assume the best at the beginning here. Maybe they had really good motives when they decided to do this. They saw the example of Joseph, now called Barnabas, and they thought, that's such a cool thing to do. We should do it too. So maybe they started out with good motives. But maybe, maybe their motives were not so pure. Maybe they observed what happened with Joseph, now called Barnabas, and, and they were jealous of the attention that he seemed to be getting. And maybe they wanted similar recognition in their life. Maybe there was some issues in their life that they, they felt were lacking and they wanted this recognition. Maybe they wanted to be celebrated, but they did it in a deceitful way. And so they had a piece of property and they sold the field. And, you know, I don't know what the numbers were, but let's just throw the number $10,000, nice round number. So let's say they sold the field for $10,000. They went to the apostles, and we again don't know for sure whether they overtly said this or they just let the apostles think this. You know, well, we sold it for $8,000 or we sold it for $5,000. And they made it seem like they gave the entire amount. And again, maybe they said it, this was how much we sold it for, or maybe they just gave the impression. And so they really sold it for 10, but they gave some lesser number. And so they do it in a deceitful manner and pretend like they gave it all. So Ananias comes up with this scheme to do this. And this is the moment when his wife Sapphira could have stepped in when he came up with this plan. Hey, Ananias, you've got a sliver in your hand. There's a defect in your character, Ananias, and I'm off to get the husk of Arna to extract it from your hand. But instead of doing that, she committed what Neil Platinga has called the sin of conniving. The sin of conniving, which is this conspiracy to commit sin. Let's read verses 3 to 6. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? Ananias you have not lied to men, but to God. You have not lied to men, but to God. Let me just take a little aside moment here and just reference just a theological idea, an idea about God, which is something we call uh, the Trinity. And this is one of the classic passages you turn to to substantiate the biblical idea of Trinity, that God is one God, one essence, who expresses himself in three co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in the verse 4, it says, Why has Satan so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And then in verse 5, it says, Ananias, you have not lied to men, but to God. And this is a very clear reference to the idea that the Holy Spirit is a full member of the Godhead that he is God himself, every bit as much as Jesus and God the Father. Now, this is an idea that we can't get our heads around because of our finite minds, this idea that God is one 
and yet he expresses himself in three co-equal distinctive persons. And it's not that one time he appears as the Father, and the next time he appears as the Son, or the next time he appears as the Spirit. That's one of the ancient heresies that still is alive and unfortunately functioning today. No, it's three co-equal beings, yet one God. So he says, you've not lied to men, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. How does he know this? It's because he is, Peter is a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not something that just happens once in the life of a believer. It's meant to be an ongoing, regular thing. Salvation happens once and has eternal ramifications. Being filled with the Spirit is an ongoing thing. So we read in Acts chapter 2 that he's filled with the Spirit. Then again in Acts chapter 4 verse 31, we're told that he's filled with the Spirit again and speaks the Word of God boldly. So here he knows that he's been lied to, that God has been lied to by Ananias and Sapphira because he's supernaturally, miraculously given what we would call a word of knowledge. He's full of the Spirit. And he supernaturally knows something he would not normally know as a human being. And he knows where the lie has taken place. I have at least two people in my life with this word of, gift, uh, word of knowledge gift. And at times, they can be rather intimidating to be around. Because I've known them to go up to people and they'll just say things like this. So are you going to tell them or am I? That's a little intimidating. It's very motivating to keep your heart right with God when you hang out with these couple of people that are buds of mine. Are you going to tell, or, or am I? And so Peter confronts him directly, and the deep sin here, there's layers of it or whatever, the deep sin of here is not jealousy or, or resentment or greed, none of which are good, but the, the, the one he's really striking at the heart of is deceit. And so he's basically saying to Ananias, what were you thinking, buddy? Nobody held a gun to your head on this one. No one forced you to sell that land. This was completely of your own volition. You, you didn't have to give any of it. And you could have just said, you know, well, hey, we sold it and we're giving a portion of it to us, uh, to, the, to the, the, the early church to be used as needed. Um, you didn't have to give this impression. You didn't have to lie. Why would you lie like this? Nobody forced you to do this. See, there's something about keeping things hidden that is toxic to the community of God's people. Something about keeping things hidden that are toxic. So a couple of hours goes by, three hours goes by, and in, um, in verse 7, let me begin, let me go back to verse 5. When Ananias heard this, you have not lied to men but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me. See, back then they didn't have texting or whatever. Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter gives her one more chance. 
and she lies deliberately. Peter said to her, how could you come to, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Same conversation, same direct lies, same results. And two times in the text it says, great fear seized the whole church. Now this is very interesting to me, this story. Because remember, we're in the early days of the church. They got maybe fifteen or 20,000 people, so they're a small group. And they're trying to grow the church. They're trying to expand it because they know they've been called on to share the gospel with the whole world. And it seems to me very, you know, because God's ways are just very different than how we would do it. You know, you read the books on how to grow a church, and this is probably not a story they would referred to in, in how to grow your church. Because imagine that if this took place, which it did, I don't think that would attract too many new converts. You know, next week, you, you put in the bulletin in church that week. Um, next week's sermon is going to be this. Come to church, you might drop dead. I don't think that's going to attract a ton of people. But what I think is going on in this passage is this. God's at work. People's lives are being transformed. People are coming to faith every day. Supernatural things are taking place. People are being saved. People are being forgiven. People are being healed. People are being filled with the Spirit. The racial barriers that are so divisive in that culture, even more so than in our culture, as horrible as that is in our culture, in that culture it was even worse. <laughs> Hard to imagine, but it was. These racial barriers are being knocked down, and people that up until this point hate each other up until this point if they see someone uh, coming down the street that's a Samaritan and they're a Jew they would cross to the other side of the street they would never talk to one another they loathed each other these barriers are all coming down in Christ and this is all because people are humbling themselves because they're being honest because they're admitting their sin because they're admitting the fact that they understand that their sinful condition is hopeless, absolutely hopeless. There's nothing they can do. There's no act they can commit. There's no gift that they can give that will pay for the hopelessness of their situation. And that because of Christ alone, the only way they can be cleansed and the only way they can be forgiven is by surrendering their life to him. By asking them, Jesus, to forgive them based on his actions on the cross. And then just surrendering their life totally to him. And as they are doing this with great sincerity, spiritual power is at work. Spiritual power is flowing when people are getting honest about their sin and their need for God. It says in 2 Corinthians, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, in our culture in particular, this is an extremely confusing idea because we never hear stuff like this. We hear just the opposite. In our culture, we are schooled with the idea that we have to show how strong we are. 
We are schooled with the idea that we had better put on the facade and fake very well, fake better than the next guy, pretending that we are better than we really are. And that kind of thinking slowly kills the work of God in my life and in the church. Because when we, in an appropriate way, get honest about our struggles in life, and when we share real life with one another, when we share our real struggles, when we share our character defects, when we ask for God to step in, He does step in, and He starts to work, and sin gets named and people get known to each other, and people are loved, and God brings healing. And this is what's taking place in the church, in Acts. And when we hide things, which we are all taught to do, it costs us deeply. It puts up barriers in our relationship with God. It, 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 restricts the flow of spiritual power through us because we think we have to be something that we're not. And so it costs us, and then it costs other people around us that are watching us because they assume they need to hide things too. And so the Holy Spirit is at work in these opening chapters of the book of Acts, and lives are being transformed in ways they've never seen before. And now we see in chapter 5 the first documented story of blatant hiding and deception in the early church in order to look better than they really are, which is a chronic situation in our world. So in the next just few minutes here, Let's walk through some steps about how to become the kind of people who actually live the word sorry. With, and with, with doing that, God begins to release significant spiritual power in and through our life. He, he releases transformational power in our life when we live the word sorry in a biblical way. And so three things. The first one, and they're pretty simple things, but they're pretty tough. <laughs> the first one is to do a fearless and searching moral inventory. A fearless and searching moral inventory. And we read about this in Psalm 139. It says, search me, O God. So there's this, there's this coming before God where you say, you know, I, I know there's these blind spots in my life. Some of them are, are glaring, they're flashing like neon lights, but, but some of them are very hidden. So would you search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So in other words, at that moment, God may not, because it says see if. He may not point out anything, but he may be really willing to point something out in our life when we ask him to search our heart. And, and what some people do, which I've been known to do at points, is I'll ask that question in light of the seven deadly sins, which we see in church history. And the seven deadly sins in church history are pride and anger and lust and envy and gluttony and greed and laziness. Some people will use the, the six, it says six, no, there are seven things that God hates in the book of Proverbs. And so they'll just work through that list and say, Lord, is there some undealt with pride in my life, or issues of lust that I've not dealt with. 
And if God points something out specific, and I always say that, it will never be general, it will never be vague, because you can't do anything about just a general sense of, well, I don't, I'm not such a good person or whatever. What can you do about that? It will be very specific. And so God will remind you of that time of pride or this issue of pride in specific terms. And if he points out something specific, and if we're, we're, we're saying, God, are, are, are some of these things, is this thing in my thoughts or in my behavior? And when he specifically points it out, I own my stuff, I admit to my culpability that it's not somebody else's fault, it's not the world's fault, it's Scott's fault. And maybe I write it down and, it, and I process it in some detail, and it's a painful thing to do. You know what the world needs most? <laughs> um, it's not better government. Now, good government's an important thing, and we want good government. We're called to pray for those in leadership over us, and so we should pray for the different levels of government that we are blessed in a blessed country to have. But the most important thing, I and mean, what the world needs most, is not better government. Absolutely not. It's not better laws. And again, it's important to have good laws, but it's not better laws. That's not the most important thing. It's not better medicine. And again, we appreciate the benefits of medical science, but it's not better medicine. You know what the world needs most? The world needs a better me. That's where it starts. The world needs most is a better Scott, where I can honestly step before God and say, God, is there any sliver in me that needs to be pulled out? Is there any slow leak that needs to be patched and repaired? And this is, you know, asking these kinds of questions, it's, it's the kind of thing that I do basically most days. I'm not going to say every day, because if I said that, then I'd have to get a sliver removed tomorrow, because there's some days I don't. But, but basically, with some regularity, I'll ask these kinds of questions. And, then, and so just in fairly short form. And then at points, I might take longer and just, just say, I'm going to set aside a period of time. I'm not going to give you a period of time, but for me, it would be a longer period of time. And I would just you know, kind of move systematically, say, through the seven deadly sins and just say, God, would you just search my heart? And here's an important thing to remember. As you're doing this, I'm not trying to invent things. You know, I'm not trying to go, well, I'm just going to conjure something up here that I might have done. It's not like that. I'm not, in any sense, trying to revisit things that God has already dealt with, that God has already forgiven, that God has cleansed, because he never brings it up again. It's not that he forgets. He's not capable of forgetting anything because he's all-knowing. But what he doesn't do is bring it back up again once it has been dealt with by the living Christ. He never brings it up again. So we're not looking to do that. So we do this moral inventory that the Spirit of God works through our life. The second one is I confess my defects to God, myself, and another person. It says in the book of James, uh, we're invited, it says, confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So something happens, and, and it just something happens when people get real. 
And it's tough to do that with another person. And I'm still really in the process of learning about that. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right away. You're thinking, oh, Scott, I don't need to do that. I can just talk to God and he'll forgive me without me telling another person. And here's my response to you. Of course he can. And of course he does. Because he's God and it's only, only, only based on what Jesus has done on the cross that we can entertain and receive forgiveness. It's only through him that we can be cleansed. Absolutely true. But here's the thing I've found in my life. I don't know about you. But what I've found is this. When I end up talking to either Doug or Bob, two of my closest friends, they're not in this church, and then one or two people that are in this church, and I talk to them about what I've done, and I, I, I'm, 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 I'm thinking about doing something I know I shouldn't do, and I'm, I'm thinking, one day I'm going to have to face the pain of what I've done, or the embarrassment of telling Bob about this, it makes me less likely to do it then. It makes me more prone to take a step back. That's just been my experience. And the three of us, I think in particular of Doug and Bob and I, are in process about this. We're learning to do this with one another and we're sharing more. And uh, I remember one time in particular, not long ago, God reminded me of something from my past. And, and I had confessed this to God uh, and I know he had forgiven me, but it, it still was bothering me. And it was something from my teenage years, something I did that I was ashamed of when I was a teenager. It was not a good thing. And so I just, I felt led of God not to ask him to forgive me again, because I knew he had already, but I just went and I sat down with Doug. It was embarrassing to do, but I just confessed something to Doug that I was ashamed of. And he just said, oh, well, just let me pray for you, Scott. And he just prayed and we just... Uh, thanked God for his forgiveness and just for his cleansing and uh, it's never been a deal since and what I've found in my life is that when I carry secrets they're a burden and there is more and more freedom in life when there is less and less secrets let me say that again there is more and more freedom in life when there's less and less secrets. Now, who should we talk to about stuff like this? Let me just say, Doug and Bob are two guys and one or two people here that I totally trust. So I don't just go and look up some Tom, Dick, or Harry, whoever. I don't just go up to anybody. It's people that know me and I know them. So I just ask you, which I'll do from time to time, do you have a person like that in your life? If you don't, Maybe it's a person in your small group. One of the reasons we encourage people to be part of a small group so that you can know and be known and pray for one another and learn together and grow together. But if you don't have someone like that in your life, maybe you need to go to a good biblical Christian counselor and just say, you know, I know God is the one that forgives, but I, just, I need to just confess this and just no more secrets. Because of Christ, God has made and is making the church to be a place where we can be known. And when we are known, we're loved. And when we are known and we are loved, he brings healing. 
And as Aaron, Pastor Aaron referenced just a number of minutes ago, repentance, when we really repent, it's not about oops. It's about owning my stuff and, and Jesus forgiving me. And the word repentance, metanoia, means to, it means to turn and change directions. And so I don't just carry on with whatever it is I'm doing. It's, it's this sincere desire, would you forgive me and you lift, my, lift me and change me and let me go in another direction. And what I've also found is that when we forgive when we confess, rather, we're more able to forgive other people when we are more aware of our own sinfulness. When, when I'm turning a blind eye to my own sin, sinfulness, I'm more judgmental of other people. I'm more prone to not forgive them. The third one is, I do whatever I can to make right what I've made wrong. I do whatever I can to make right what I have made wrong. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 6, and we won't take time to read it right now, but in in Leviticus chapter 6, it lists a number of sinful things that we do, and it says, you know, we do things like we we're deceitful and we steal and we cheat. It says in verse 5, it says sometimes we see something, somebody drops something in a sense, and, and we know that this particular item belongs to this person, but they don't realize that they dropped their cell phone or whatever, and so we just pick it up and we don't give it back to them, and we keep it. So we do these, or or anger, it lists a number of things. And then it says in verse 5, when we sin like this and we realize our guilt, we make restitution in full. We make restitution in full. And, And I've lost track, and I've still got a lot more of this to do, but I've lost track over the years just the number of times that God has has just led me to speak to people in person, and if it's not possible to speak to them in person, maybe because they've died even, or there is some part of the world it's just not possible, I'll write them a letter. Even if they're dead, I'd write them a letter saying, I did this to you and I was wrong, please forgive me. Or I make a phone call, or if I, again, if I can speak to them in person, I do. And it's embarrassing, and it's costly to make restitution, and it's absolutely worth it totally worth it. It's so liberating to do. And so there's this moral inventory, there's confession, there's making amends and, and uh, making restitution. And it's not about a list of things I do to earn God's forgiveness. It never is because we cannot earn God's forgiveness. It's impossible to do that. It's just allowing the power of God to be at work in my life, the relationship with God to grow um, like it's meant to grow. It opens the door to God's transforming, redeeming work in my life. There's a couple of barriers we face in, in um, doing this, at least a couple. And one of them is, is uh, we listen to the lies of the evil one. I don't need to do this. You know, Scott, Scott's not an axe murderer. He's never kidnapped anybody. He's never robbed a bank. He hasn't committed adultery. These issues in my life, these slivers in my life, they're just manageable. And we, we consider ourselves, and I certainly have, you know, to be quote-unquote decent people. Now, the problem with the sins of decent people 
is that they're very insidious. They're, they're, they're things like pride and resentment and being judgmental. And these are the ones that we usually need, at least I do, need help seeing. If you think about it, if you read the biblical account, it was the decent people in that culture that were Jesus' biggest enemies. They were the ones that put him on a cross and tried to kill the church. So speaking as a recovering, quote-unquote, decent person, I think I need more help seeing my blind, sinful spots, not less help. Another barrier that the evil one plants is, I know I should do this, but I don't want to. (laughs) Here's a little secret. Nobody wants to. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, thou shalt do what thou wantest to do. It doesn't say that anywhere. Thou shalt do what thou wantest to do. And if you're serious about following Jesus, I need to say, I don't want to. That needs to die in me and in you. This is why, Jesus, this is why Paul rather says, I have been crucified with Christ. Sorry is the third word. Let me pray with you as we go.